More Celtic Fairy Tales by Joseph Jacobs Recording by Adrian J. Wilson, England The Black Horse Once there was a king, and he had three sons, and when the king died, they did not give a shade of anything to the youngest son, but an old white limping garron. If I get but this, quoth he, it seems that I had best go with this same. He was going with it right before him, sometimes walking, sometimes riding. When he had been riding a good while, he thought that the garron would need a while of eating. So he came down to earth, and what should he see, coming out of the heart of the western Ert towards him, but a rider, riding high, well, and right well. All hail, my lad, said he. Hail, king's son, said the other. What's your news, said the king's son. I have got that, said the lad who came. I am after breaking my heart riding this ass of a horse. But will you give me the limping white garron for him? No, said the prince. It would be a bad business for me. You need not fear, said the man that came. There is no saying but that you might make better use of him than I. He has one value. There is no single place that you can think of in the four parts of the wheel of the world that the black horse will not take you there. So the king's son got the black horse, and he gave the limping white garron. Where should he think of being when he mounted, but in the realm under waves? He went, and before sunrise on the morrow he was there. What should he find when he got there but the son of the king under waves holding a court? and the people of the realm gathered to see if there was anyone who would undertake to go to seek the daughter of the king of the Greeks to be the prince's wife. No one came forward, when who should come up but the rider of the black horse? You, rider of the black horse, said the prince, I lay you under crosses and under spells to have the daughter of the king of the Greeks here before the sun rises to-morrow. He went out and he reached the black horse, and leaned his elbow on his mane, and he heaved a sigh. Sigh of a king's son under spells, said the horse, but have no care, we shall do the thing that was set before you. And so off they went. Now, said the horse, when we get near the great town of the Greeks, you will notice that the forefeet of a horse never went to the town before. The king's daughter will see me from the top of the castle, looking out of a window, and she will not be content without a turn of a ride upon me. Say that she may have that, but the horse will suffer no man but you to ride before a woman on him. They came near the big town, and he fell to horsemanship, and the princess was looking out of the windows and noticed the horse. The horsemanship pleased her, and she came out, just as the horse had come. Give me a ride on the horse, said she. You shall have that, said he, but the horse will let no man ride him before a woman but me. I have a horseman of my own, said she. If so, set him in front, said he. Before the horseman mounted at all, when he tried to get up, the horse lifted his legs and kicked him off. Come then yourself and mount before me, said she. I won't leave the matter so. He mounted the horse, and she behind him, and before she glanced from where she was nearer sky than earth, he was in realm underwaves with her before sunrise. You are come, said Prince Underwaves. I am come, said he. There you are, my hero, said the prince. You are the son of a king, but I am a son of success. Anyhow, we shall have no delay or neglect now, but a wedding. Just gently, said the princess. Your wedding is not so short a way off as you suppose. Till I get the silver cup that my grandmother had at her wedding, and that my mother had as well, I will not marry, for I need to have it at my own wedding. You, rider of the black horse, said the prince under waves. I set you under spells and under crosses unless the silver cup is here before dawn tomorrow. Out he went and reached the horse and leaned his elbow on his mane, and he heaved a sigh. 
Sigh of a king's son under spells, said the horse. Mount and you shall get the silver cup. The people of the realm are gathered about the king tonight, for he has missed his daughter. And when you get to the palace, go in and leave me without. They will have the cup there going round the company. Go in and sit in their midst. Say nothing and seem to be as one of the people of the place. But when the cup comes round to you, take it under your oxter and come out to me with it and we'll go. Away they went and they got to Greece and he went into the palace and did as the black horse bade. He took the cup and came out and mounted and before sunrise he was in the realm under waves. You are come, said Prince Underwaves. I am come, said he. We had better get married now, said the prince to the Greek princess. Slowly and softly, said she, I will not marry till I get the silver ring that my grandmother and my mother wore when they were wedded. You, rider of the black horse, said the prince Underwaves, do that. Let's have that ring here tomorrow at sunrise. The lad went to the black horse and put his elbow on his crest, and told him how it was. There never was a matter set before me harder than this matter which has now been set in front of me, said the horse, but there is no help for it at any rate. Mount me. There is a snow mountain and an ice mountain, and a mountain of fire between us and the winning of that ring. It is right hard for us to pass them. Thus they went as they were, and about a mile from the snow mountain they were in a bad case with cold. As they came near it he struck the horse, and with the bound he gave the black horse was on the top of the snow mountain. At the next bound he was on the top of the ice mountain. At the third bound he went through the mountain of fire. When he had passed the mountains he was dragging at the horse's neck as though he were about to lose himself. He went on before him, down to a town below. Go down, said the black horse, to a smithy. Make an iron spike for every bone end in me. Down he went as the horse desired, and he got the spikes made, and back he came with them. Stick them into me, said the horse, every spike of them in every bone end that I have. That he did. He stuck the spikes into the horse. There is a lock here, said the horse, four miles long and four miles wide, and when I go out into it, the lock will take fire and blaze. If you see the lock of fire going out before the sun rises, expect me, and if not, go your way. Out went the black horse into the lake, and the lake became flame. Long was he stretched out about the lake, beating his palms and roaring. Day came, and the loch did not go out. But at the hour when the sun was rising out of the water, the lake went out, and the black horse rose in the middle of the water with one single spike in him, and the ring upon its end. He came on shore, and down he fell beside the loch. Then down went the rider. He got the ring, and he dragged the horse down to the side of a hill. He fell to sheltering him with his arms about him, and as the sun was rising, he got better and better, till about midday, when he rose on his feet. Mount, said the horse, and let us be gone. He mounted on the black horse, and away they went. He reached the mountains, and he leaped the horse at the fire mountain, and was on the top. From the mountain of fire he leaped to the mountain of ice, and from the mountain of ice to the mountain of snow. He put the mountains past him, and by morning he was in realm under the waves. You are come, said the prince. I am, said he. That's true, said Prince Underwaves. A king's son are you, but a son of success am I. We shall have no more mistakes and delays, but a wedding this time. Go easy, said the princess of the Greeks. Your wedding is not so near as you think yet. Till you make a castle, I won't marry you. Not to your father's castle, nor to your mother's will I go to dwell, but make me a castle for which your father's castle will not make washing water. You, rider of the black horse, make that, said Prince Underwaves, before the morrow's sun rises. 
The lad went out to the horse and leaned his elbow on his neck and sighed, thinking that this castle never could be made forever. There never came a turn in my road yet that is easier for me to pass than this, said the black horse. Glance that the lad gave from him, he saw all that there were, and ever so many rites and stonemasons at work, and the castle was ready before the sun rose. He shouted at the prince under waves, and he saw the castle. He tried to pluck out his eye, thinking that it was a false sight. Son of King Underwaves, said the rider of the black horse, don't think that you have a false sight. This is a true sight. That's true, said the prince. You are a son of success, but I am a son of success too. There will be no more mistakes and delays, but a wedding now. No, said she, the time is come. Should we not go to look at the castle? There's time enough to get married before the night comes. They went to the castle, and the castle was without a but. I see one, said the prince. One want at least to be made good. A well to be made inside, so that water may not be far to fetch when there is a feast or a wedding in the castle. That won't be long undone, said the rider of the black horse. The well was made and it was seven fathoms deep and two or three fathoms wide. It is very well made, said she, but for one little fault yonder. Where is it? said Prince Underwaves. There, said she. He bent him down to look. She came out, and she put her two hands at his back and cast him in. Be thou there, said she. If I go to be married, thou art not the man, but the man who did each exploit that has been done and if he chooses, him will I have. Away she went with the rider of the little black horse to the wedding. And at the end of three years after that, so it was that he first remembered the black horse, or where he left him. He got up and went out, and he was very sorry for his neglect of the black horse. He found him just where he left him. Good luck to you, gentlemen, said the horse. You seem as if you had got something that you like better than me. I have not got that, and I won't. But it came over me to forget you, said he. I don't mind, said the horse. It will make no difference. Raise your sword and smite off my head. Fortune will now allow that I should do that, said he. Do it instantly, or I will do it to you, said the horse. So the lad drew his sword and smote off the horse's head. Then he lifted his two palms and uttered a doleful cry. What should he hear behind him but, All hail, my brother-in-law. He looked behind him, and there was the finest man he ever set eyes upon. What set you weeping for the black horse, said he? This, said the lad, that there never was born of man, or beast, a creature in this world that I was fonder of. Would you take me for him, said the stranger? If I could think you the horse, I would. But if not, I would rather the horse, said the rider. I am the black horse, said the lad, and if I were not, how should you have all these things that you went to seek in my father's house? Since I went under spells, many a man have I ran at before you met me. They had but one word amongst them. They could not keep me, nor manage me, and they never kept me a couple of days. But when I fell in with you, you kept me till the time ran out that was to come from the spells, and now you shall go home with me and we will make a wedding in my father's house. The Story of the MacAndrew Family A long time ago, in the county Mayo, there lived a rich man of the name of MacAndrew. He owned cows and horses without number, not to mention ducks and geese and pigs, and his land extended as far as the eye could reach on the four sides of you. MacAndrew was a lucky man, the neighbours all said, but as for himself, when he looked on his seven big sums growing up like weeds, and with scarcely any more sense, he felt sore enough, for of all the stupid Omadorns, the seven MacAndrew brothers were the stupidest. When the youngest grew to be a man, the father built a house for each of them, and gave every one a piece of land and a few cows hoping to make men of them before he died. For as the old man said, 
while God spares my life, I'll be able to have an eye to them, and maybe they will learn from experience. The seven young MacAndrews were happy enough. Their fields were green, their cows were fat and sleek, and they thought they would never see a poor day. All went well for a time, and the day of the fair of Killalla was as fine a day as ever shone in Ireland, when the whole seven got ready to be off, bright and early in the morning. Each one of them drove before him three fine cows, and a finer herd when they were all together was never seen in the country, far or near. Now there was a smart farmer named O'Toole, whose fields were nearing on the MacAndrews, and he had many a time set his heart on the fine cattle belonging to his easy-going neighbours. So when he saw them passing with their twenty-one cows, he went out and hailed them. "'Where are ye going to this fine morning?' "'It's to the fair of Killalla we're going to sell these fine cows our father gave us,' they all answered together. "'And are ye going to sell cows that the evil eye has long been set on? "'Oh, Con and Seamus, I would never believe it of ye, "'even if that spalpeen of a pat would do such a thing. "'Anyone would think that the spirit of the good mother that bore ye "'would stretch out a hand and keep ye from committing such a mortal sin.' This O'Toole said to the three eldest, who stood trembling, while the four younger ones stuck their knuckles into their eyes and began to cry. Oh, indeed, Mr. O'Toole, we never knew that the cows were under the evil eye. How did ye find it out? Oh, sorrow the day when such a fine lot of cattle should go to the bad, answered Con. Indeed, you may well ask it, when it's meself that was always a good neighbour, and kept watch on old Judy, the witch, when she used to stand over there, laughing at the ravens flying over the cows. Do ye mind the time your father spoke ugly to her down by the crossroads? She never forgot it, and now your twenty-one fine cows will never be worth the hides on their backs. Warra, 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 roared the seven MacAndrews, so loud the pretty Katie O'Toole bobbed her head out of the window, and the hindermost cows began to caper like mad. The spell has come upon them, cried Seamus. Oh, what'll we do, what'll we do? Hold your whist, man alive, said O'Toole. I'm a good neighbour, as I said before. So to give ye a lift in the world, I'll take the risk on myself and buy the cows from ye for the price of their hides. Sure no harm can be done to the hides for making leather, so I'll give ye a shilling apiece, and that's better than nothing. Twenty-one bright shillings going to the fair may make your fortune. It seemed neck or nothing with the MacAndrews, and they accepted the offer, thanking O'Toole for his generosity, and helped him drive the cows into his field. Then they set off for the fair. They had never been in a fair before, and when they saw the fine sights, they forgot all about the cows, and only remembered that they had each a shilling to spend. Everyone knew the MacAndrews, and soon a crowd gathered round them, praising their fine looks, and telling them what a fine father they had to give them so much money, so that the seven Omadorns lost their heads entirely, and treated right and left, until there wasn't a farthing left of the twenty-one shillings. Then they staggered home a little the worse for the fine whisky they drank with the boys. It was a sorry day for old MacAndrew, when his seven sons came home, without a penny of the price of their twenty-one fine cows, and he vowed he'd never give them any more. So one day passed with another, and the seven young MacAndrews were as happy as could be until the fine old father fell sick and died. The eldest son came in for all the father had, so he felt like a lord. To see him strut and swagger was a sight to make a grum growdy laugh. One day... To show how fine he could be, he dressed in his best, and with a purse filled with gold pieces, started off for the market town. When he got there, in he walked to a public house, and called for the best of everything, and to make a fine fellow of himself, he tripled the price of everything to the landlord. As soon as he got through, his eye suddenly caught sight of a little keg, all gilded over to look like gold, that hung outside the door for a sign. Con had never heeded it before, and he asked the landlord what it was. Now the landlord, like many another, 
had it in mind that he might as well get all he could out of a MacAndrew, and he answered quickly, "'You stupid Omadorn, don't you know what that is? It's a mare's egg.' "'And will a foal come out of it?' "'Of course! What a question to ask a decent man!' "'I never saw one before,' said the amazed MacAndrew. "'Well, ye see one now, Con, and take a good look at it. "'Will ye sell it?' "'Och, Con MacAndrew, do ye think I want to sell that fine egg "'after caping it so long hung up there before the sun, "'when it is ready to hatch out a foal "'that will be worth twenty good guineas to me?' "'I'll give ye twenty guineas for it,' answered Con. "'Then it's a bargain,' said the landlord, "'and he took down the keg and handed it to Con, "'who handed out the twenty guineas, all the money he had. "'Be careful of it, and carry it as easy as ye can, "'and when ye get home, hang it up in the sun.' "'Con promised, and set off home with his prize. "'Near the rise of a hill he met his brothers. "'What have ye, Con?' the most wonderful thing in the world, a mare's egg. Faith, what is it like? asked Pat, taking it from Con. Go easy, can't ye? It's very careful ye have to be. But the brothers took no heed to Con, and before one could say whist, away rolled the keg down the hill, while all seven ran after it. But before anyone could catch it, it rolled into a clump of bushes, and in an instant out hopped a hare. Bedad, there's the foal, cried Con, and all seven gave chase, but there was no use trying to catch a hare. That's the finest foal that ever was. If he was five year old, the devil himself could not catch him, Con said, and with that the seven Omadorns gave up the chase and went quietly home. As I said before, everyone had it in mind to get all he could out of the MacAndrews. Everyone said, one man might as well have it as another, for they're bound to spend every penny they have. So their money dwindled away. Then a fine horse would go for a few bits of glass they took for precious stones, and by and by a couple of pigs, or a pair of fine geese, for a bit of ribbon to tie on a hat. And at last their land began to go. One day, Seamus was sitting by his fireplace warming himself, and to make a good fire he threw on a big heap of turf, so that by and by it got roaring hot, and instead of feeling chilly as he had before, Seamus got as hot as a spare rib on a spit. Just then, in came his youngest brother. That's a great fire you have here, Seamus. It is indeed, and too near it is to me. Run like a good boy to gibble in the mason, and see if he can't move the chimney to the other side of the room. The youngest MacAndrew did as he was bid, and soon in came Giblin, the mason. You're in a sad plight, Seamus, roasting alive. What can I do for ye? Can ye move the chimney over Bayant? Faith I can, but ye will have to move a bit. Just go out for a walk with your brother, and the job will be done when ye come back. Seamus did as he was bid, and Giblin took the chair the Omadorn was sitting on and moved it away from the fire, and then sat down for a quiet laugh for himself, and to consider on the price he'd charge for the job. When Seamus came back, Giblin led him to the chair, saying, Now, isn't that a great deal better? You're a fine man, Giblin, and ye did it without making a bit of dirt. What'll I give ye for so fine a job? If ye wouldn't mind, I'd like the meadow field nearing on mine. It's little enough for a job like that. It's yours and welcome, Giblin, and without another word the deed was drawn. That was the finest of the MacAndrew fields, and the only pasture land left to Seamus. It was not long before it came about that first one and then another lost the house he lived in, until all had to live together in the father's old place. O'Toole and Giblin had encroached field by field, and there was nothing left but the old house and a strip of garden that none of them knew how to till. It was hard times for the seven MacAndrews, but they were happy and contented, as long as they had enough to eat, and that they had surely, for the wives of the men who got away all their fine lands and cattle had sore hearts when they saw their men enriched at the expense of the Omadorms. And every day, unbeknown to their husbands, they carried them meat and drink. 
O'Toole and Giblin now had their avaricious eyes set on the house and garden, and they were on the watch for a chance to clutch them, when luck, or something worse, threw the chance in the way of O'Toole. He was returning from town one day, just in the cool of the afternoon, when he spied the seven brothers by the roadside, sitting in a circle, facing each other. "'What may ye be doing here instead of earning your salt, ye seven big stirks?' "'We're in a bad fix, Mr. O'Toole,' answered Pat. "'We can't get up.' "'What's to hinder ye from getting up? I'd like to know. "'Don't ye see our feet are all here together in the middle, "'and not for the life of us can we each tell our own. "'You see, if one of us gets up, "'he don't know what pair of feet to take with him.' "'O'Toole was never so ready to laugh before in his life, but he thought, "'Now's me chance to get the house and garden "'before Giblin the mason comes round.' "'So he looked very grave and said,' I suppose it is hard to tell one man's feet from another's when they're all there in a heap, but I think I can help you, as I have many a time before. It would be a sorry day for ye if ye did not have me for a neighbour. What will ye give me if I help you find your feet? Anything, anything we have, so that we can get up from here, answered the whole seven together. Will ye give me the house and garden? Indeed we will. What good is a house and garden if we have to sit here all the rest of our lives? Then it's a bargain, said O'Toole, and with that he went over to the side of the road and pulled a good stout rod. Then he commenced to belabour the poor MacAndrews over the heads, feet, shoulders, and any place he could get in a stroke, until with screeches of pain they all jumped up, every one finding his own feet, and away they ran. So O'Toole got the last of the property of the MacAndrews, and there was nothing left for them but to go and beg. Smallhead and the King's Sons Long ago there lived in Erin a woman who married a man of high degree and had one daughter. Soon after the birth of the daughter, the husband died. The woman was not long a widow when she married a second time and had two daughters, These two daughters hated their half-sister, thought she was not so wise as another, and nicknamed her Smallhead. When the elder of the two sisters was fourteen years old, their father died. The mother was in great grief then, and began to pine away. She used to sit at home in the corner, and never left the house. Smallhead was kind to her mother, and the mother was fonder of her eldest daughter than of the other two, who were ashamed of her. At last the two sisters made up in their minds to kill their mother. One day, while their half-sister was gone, they put the mother in a pot, boiled her, and threw the bones outside. When Smallhead came home, there was no sign of the mother. "'Where is my mother?' asked she of the other two. "'She went out somewhere. How should we know where she is?' "'Oh, wicked girls, you have killed my mother,' said Smallhead." Smallhead wouldn't leave the house now at all, and the sisters were very angry. No man will marry either one of us, said they, if he sees our fool of a sister. Since they could not drive Smallhead from the house, they made up their minds to go away themselves. One fine morning, they left home, unknown to their half-sister, and travelled on many miles. When Smallhead discovered that her sisters were gone, she hurried after them, and never stopped till she came up with the two. They had to go home with her that day, but they scolded her bitterly. The two settled then to kill Smallhead, so one day they took twenty needles and scattered them outside in a pile of straw. "'We are going to that hill beyond,' said they, "'to stay till evening, and if you have not all the needles that are in that straw outside gathered and on the tables before us, we'll have your life.' Away they went to the hill. Smallhead sat down and was crying bitterly when a short grey cat walked in and spoke to her. "'Why do you cry and lament so?' asked the cat. "'My sisters abuse me and beat me,' answered Smallhead. "'This morning they said they would kill me in the evening, unless I had all the needles in the straw outside gathered before them.' "'Sit down here,' said the cat, "'and dry your tears.' 
The cat soon found the twenty needles and brought them to Smallhead. Stop there now, said the cat, and listen to what I tell you. I am your mother. Your sisters killed me and destroyed my body, but don't harm them. Do them good. Do the best you can for them. Save them. Obey my words and it will be better for you in the end. The cat went away for herself and the sisters came home in the evening. The needles were on the table before them. Oh, but they were vexed and angry when they saw the twenty needles and they said someone was helping their sister. One night, when Smallhead was in bed and asleep, they started away again, resolved this time never to return. Smallhead slept till morning. When she saw that the sisters were gone, she followed, traced them from place to place, inquired here and there, day after day, till one evening some person told her that they were in the house of an old hag, a terrible enchantress, who had one son and three daughters, that the house was a bad place to be in, for the old hag had more power of witchcraft than any one, and was very wicked. Smallhead hurried away to save her sisters, and facing the house, knocked at the door and asked lodgings for God's sake. Oh, then, said the hag, it is hard to refuse anyone lodgings, and besides, on such a wild stormy night. I wonder if you are anything to the young ladies who came the way this evening. The two sisters heard this, and were angry enough that Smallhead was in it, but they said nothing, not wishing the old hag to know their relationship. After supper the hag told the three strangers to sleep in a room on the right side of the house. When her own daughters were going to bed, Smallhead saw her tie a ribbon around the neck of each one of them and heard her say, Do you sleep in the left-hand bed? Smallhead hurried and said to her sisters, Come quickly, or I'll tell the woman who you are. They took the bed in the left-hand room and were in it before the hag's daughters came. Oh, said the daughters, the other bed is as good. So they took the bed in the right-hand room. When Smallhead knew the hag's daughters were asleep, she rose, took the ribbons off their necks and put them on her sister's necks and on her own. She lay awake and watched them. After a while, she heard the hag say to her son, Go now and kill the three girls. They have the clothes and money. You have killed enough in your life, and so let these go, said the son. But the old woman would not listen. The boy rose up, fearing his mother, and taking a long knife, went to the right-hand room and cut the throats of the three girls without ribbons. He went to bed then for himself, and when Smallhead found that the old hag was asleep, she roused her sisters, told what had happened, made them dress, quickly, and follow her. Believe me, they were willing and glad to follow her this time. The three travelled briskly and came soon to a bridge, called at that time the Bridge of Blood. Whoever had killed a person could not cross the bridge. When the three girls came to the bridge, the two sisters stopped. They could not go a step further. Smallhead ran across and went back again. If I did not know that you killed our mother, said she, I might know it now, for this is the Bridge of Blood. She carried one sister over the bridge on her back, and then the other. Hardly was this done when the hag was at the bridge. Bad luck to you, Smallhead, said she. I did not know that it was you that was in it last evening. You have killed my three daughters. It wasn't I that killed them, but yourself, said Smallhead. The old hag could not cross the bridge, so she began to curse, and she put every curse on Smallhead that she could remember. The sisters travelled on till they came to a king's castle. They heard that two servants were needed in the castle. Go now, said Smallhead to the two sisters, and ask for service. Be faithful and do well. You can never go back by the road you came. The two found employment at the king's castle. Smallhead took lodgings in the house of a blacksmith nearby. I should be glad to find a place as kitchen maid in the castle, said Smallhead to the blacksmith's wife. I will go to the castle and find a place for you if I can, said the woman. The blacksmith's wife found a place for Smallhead as kitchen maid in the castle, and she went there next day. I must be careful, thought Smallhead, and do my best. I am in a strange place, 
My two sisters are here in the king's castle. Who knows, we may have great fortune yet. She dressed neatly and was cheerful. Everyone liked her, liked her better than her sisters, though they were beautiful. The king had two sons, one at home and the other abroad. Smallhead thought to herself one day, It is time for the son who is here in the castle to marry. I will speak to him the first time I can. One day she saw him alone in the garden, went up to him and said, Why are you not getting married? It is high time for you. He only laughed and thought she was too bold. But then, thinking that she was a simple-minded girl who wished to be pleasant, he said, I will tell you the reason. My grandfather bound my father by an oath never to let his oldest son marry until he could get the sword of light, and I am afraid that I shall be long without marrying. Do you know where the sword of light is, or who has it? asked Smallhead. I do, said the king's son, an old hag who has great power and enchantment, and she lives a long distance from this, beyond the bridge of blood. I cannot go there myself, I cannot cross the bridge, for I have killed men in battle. Even if I could cross the bridge, I would not go, for many is the king's son that hag has destroyed or enchanted. Suppose some person were to bring the sword of light and that person a woman, would you marry her? I would indeed, said the king's son. If you promise to marry my elder sister, I will strive to bring the sword of light. I will promise most willingly, said the king's son. Next morning, early, Smallhead set out on her journey. Calling at the first shop, she bought a stone weight of salt and went on her way, never stopping or resting till she reached the hag's house at nightfall. She climbed to the gable, looked down, and saw the son making a great pot of stir about for his mother, and she hurrying him. I am as hungry as a hawk, cried she. Whenever the boy looked away, Smallhead dropped salt down, dropped it when he was not looking, dropped it till she had the whole stone of salt in the stir about. The old hag waited and waited, till at last she cried out, Bring the stir about, I am starving. Bring the pot, I will eat from the pot, give the milk here as well. The boy brought the stir about and the milk. The old woman began to eat, but the first taste she got she spat out and screamed, You put salt in the pot in place of meal. I did not, mother. You did, and it's a mean trick that you played on me. Throw this stir about to the pig outside, and go for water to the well in the field. I cannot go, said the boy. The night is too dark. I might fall into the well. You must go and bring the water. I cannot live till morning without eating. I am as hungry as yourself, said the boy, but how can I go to the well without a light? I will not go unless you give me a light. If I give you the sword of light, there is no knowing who may follow you. Maybe that devil of a small head is outside. But sooner than fast till morning, the old hag gave the sword of light to her son, warning him to take good care of it. He took the sword of light and went out. As he saw no one when he came to the well, he left the sword on the top of the steps going down to the water, so as to have good light. He had not gone down many steps when Smallhead had the sword, and away she ran over hills, dales and valleys towards the bridge of blood. The boy shouted and screamed with all his might. Out ran the hag. Where is the sword? cried she. Someone took it from the step. Off rushed the hag, following the light, but she didn't come near Smallhead till she was over the bridge. Give me the sword of light, or bad luck to you, cried the hag. Indeed, then, I will not. I will keep it, and bad luck to yourself, answered Smallhead. On the following morning she walked up to the king's son and said, I have the sword of light. Now will you marry my sister? I will, said he. The king's son married Smallhead's sister and got the sword of light. Smallhead stayed no longer in the kitchen. The sister didn't care to have her in kitchen or parlour. The king's second son came home. He was not long in the castle when Smallhead said to herself, Maybe he will marry my second sister. She saw him one day in the garden went toward him. He said something. She answered, then asked, Is it not time for you to be getting married like your brother? 
When my grandfather was dying, said the young man, he bound my father not to let his second son marry till he had the black book. This book used to shine and give brighter light than ever the sword of light did, and I suppose it does yet. The old hag beyond the bridge of blood has the book, and no one dares to go near her, for many is the king's son killed or enchanted by that woman. Would you marry my second sister if you were to get the black book? I would indeed. I would marry any woman if I got the black book with her. The sword of light and the black book were in our family till my grandfather's time. Then they were stolen by that cursed old hag. I will have the book, said Smallhead, or die in the trial to get it. Knowing that stirabout was the main food of the hag, Smallhead settled in her mind to play another trick. Taking a bag, she scraped the chimney, gathered about a stone of soot, and took it with her. The night was dark and rainy. When she reached the hag's house, she climbed up the gable to the chimney and found that the sun was making stir about for his mother. She dropped the soot down by degrees till at last the whole stone of soot was in the pot. Then she scraped around the top of the chimney till a lump of soot fell on the boy's hand. Oh, mother, said he, the night is wet and soft, the soot is falling. Cover the pot, said the hag. Be quick with that stir about, I am starving. The boy took the pot to his mother. Bad luck to you, cried the hag the moment she tasted the stir about. This is full of soot. Throw it out to the pig. If I throw it out, there is no water inside to make more, and I'll not go in the dark and rain to the well. You must go, screamed she. I'll not stir a foot out of this unless I get a light, said the boy. Is it the book you're thinking of, you fool, to take it and lose it as you did the sword? Smallhead is watching you. How could Smallhead, the creature, be outside all the time? If you have no use for the water, you can do without it. Sooner than stop fasting till morning, the hag gave her son the book, saying, Do not put this down, or let it from your hand till you come in, or I'll have your life. The boy took the book and went to the well. Smallhead followed him carefully. He took the book down into the well with him, and when he was stooping to dip water, she snatched the book and pushed him into the well, where he came very near drowning. Smallhead was far away when the boy recovered and began to scream and shout to his mother. She came in a hurry, and finding that the book was gone, fell into such a rage that she thrust a knife into her son's heart and ran after Smallhead, who had crossed the bridge before the hag could come up with her. When the old woman saw Smallhead on the other side of the bridge facing her and dancing with delight, she screamed, You took the sword of light and the black book and your two sisters are married. Oh, then bad luck to you. I will put my curse on you wherever you go. You have all my children killed and I a poor feeble old woman. Bad luck to yourself, said Smallhead. I am not afraid of a curse from the like of you. If you had lived an honest life, you wouldn't be as you are today. Now, small head, said the old hag, you have me robbed of everything and my children destroyed. Your two sisters are well married. Your fortune began with my ruin. Come now and take care of me in my old age. I'll take my curse from you and you will have good luck. I bind myself never to harm a hair of your head. Small head thought a while, promised to do this and said, if you harm me or try to harm me, it will be the worse for yourself. The old hag was satisfied and went home. Smallhead went to the castle and was received with great joy. Next morning she found the king's son in the garden and said, If you marry my sister tomorrow, you will have the black book. I will marry her gladly, said the king's son. Next day the marriage was celebrated and the king's son got the book. Smallhead remained in the castle about a week, then she left good health with her sisters and went to the hag's house. The old woman was glad to see her and showed the girl her work. All Smallhead had to do was to wait on the hag and feed a large pig that she had. I am fatting that pig, said the hag. He is seven years old now, and the longer you keep a pig, the harder his meat is. We'll keep this pig a while longer, and then we'll kill and eat him. Smallhead did her work. The old hag taught her some things, and Smallhead learned herself far more than the hag dreamt of. The girl fed the pig three times a day, never thinking that he could be anything but a pig.
The hag had sent word to her sister that she had in the eastern world, bidding her come, and they would kill the pig and have a great feast. The sister came, and one day when the hag was going to walk with her sister, she said to Smallhead, Give the pig plenty of meal today. This is the last food he'll have. Give him his fill. The pig had his own mind, and knew what was coming. He put his nose under the pot, and threw it on Smallhead's toes, and she barefoot. With that, she ran into the house for a stick, and seeing a rod on the edge of the loft, snatched it, and hit the pig. That moment the pig was a splendid young man. Smallhead was amazed. Never fear, said the young man, I am the son of a king that the old hag hated, the king of Munster. She stole me from my father seven years ago, and enchanted me, made a pig of me. Smallhead told the king's son then how the hag had treated her. I must make a pig of you again, said she. For the hag is coming. Be patient, and I'll save you if you promise to marry me. I promise you, said the king's son. With that she struck him, and he was a pig again. She put the switch in its place, and was at her work when the two sisters came. The pig ate his meal now with a good heart, for he felt sure of rescue. Who is that girl you have in the house, and where did you find her? asked the sister. All my children died of the plague, and I took this girl to help me. She is a very good servant. At night the hag slept in one room, her sister in another, and Smallhead in a third. When the two sisters were sleeping soundly, Smallhead rose, stole the hag's magic book, and then took the rod. She went next to where the pig was, and with one blow of the rod made a man of him. With the help of the magic book, Smallhead made two doves of herself and the king's son, and they took flight through the air and flew on without stopping. Next morning the hag called Smallhead, but she did not come. She hurried out to see the pig. The pig was gone. She ran to her book. Not a sign of it. Oh, cried she, that villain of a Smallhead has robbed me. She has stolen my book, made a man of the pig, and taken him away with her. What could she do but tell her whole story to the sister? Go you, said she, and follow them. You have more enchantment than Smallhead has. How am I to know them, asked the sister. Bring the first two strange things that you find. They will turn themselves into something wonderful. The sister then made a hawk of herself and flew away as swiftly as any March wind. Look behind, said Smallhead to the king's son some hours later. See what is coming. I see nothing, said he but a hawk coming swiftly. That is the hag's sister. She has three times more enchantment than the hag herself. But fly down on the ditch and be picking yourself, as doves do in rainy weather, and maybe she'll pass without seeing us. The hawk saw the doves, but thinking them nothing wonderful, flew on till evening, and then went back to her sister. Did you see anything wonderful? I did not. I saw only two doves, and they picking themselves. You fool! Those doves were Smallhead and the king's son. Off with you in the morning, and don't let me see you again without the two with you. Away went the hawk a second time, and swiftly as Smallhead and the king's son flew, the hawk was gaining on them. Seeing this, Smallhead and the king's son dropped down into a large village, and it being market day, they made two heather brooms of themselves. The two brooms began to sweep the road without anyone holding them, and swept toward each other. This was a great wonder. Crowds gathered at once around the two brooms. The old hag, flying over in the form of a hawk, saw this, and thinking that it must be Smallhead and the king's son were in it, came down, turned into a woman, and said to herself, I'll have those two brooms. She pushed forward so quickly through the crowd that she came knocking down a man standing before her. The man was vexed. You cursed old hag, cried he, do you want to knock us down? With that he gave her a blow and drove her against another man, that that man gave her a push, that sent her spinning against the third man, and so on, till between them all they came near putting the life out of her, and pushed her away from the brooms. A woman in the crowd called out then, it would be nothing but right to knock the head off that old hag, and she trying to push us away from the mercy of God, for it was God who sent the brooms to sweep the road for us. True for you, said another woman, with that the people were as angry as angry could be, and were ready to kill the hag.
They were going to take the head off the hag when she made a hawk of herself and flew away, vowing never to do another stroke of work for her sister. She might do her own work or let it alone. When the hawk disappeared, the two heather brooms rose and turned into doves. The people felt sure when they saw the doves that the brooms were a blessing from heaven, and it was the old hag that drove them away. On the following day Smallhead and the king's son saw his father's castle, and the two came down not too far from it in their own forms. Smallhead was a very beautiful woman now, and why not? She had the magic and didn't spare it. She made herself as beautiful as ever she could. The like of her was not to be seen in that kingdom or the next one. The king's son was in love with her that minute, and did not wish to part with her, but she would not go with him. "'When you are at your father's castle,' said Smallhead, "'all will be overjoyed to see you, and the king will give a great feast in your honour. "'If you kiss anyone, or let any living thing kiss you, you'll forget me forever.' I will not let even my own mother kiss me, said he. The king's son went to the castle. All were overjoyed. They had thought him dead, had not seen him for seven years. He would let no one come near to kiss him. I am bound by oath to kiss no one, said he to his mother. At that moment, an old grey hound came in, and with one spring was on his shoulder, licking his face. All that the king's son had gone through in seven years was forgotten in one moment. Smallhead went toward a forge near the castle. The smith had a wife far younger than himself and a stepdaughter. They were no beauties. In the rear of the forge was a well and a tree growing over it. I will go up in that tree, thought Smallhead, and spend the night in it. She went up and sat just over the well. She was not long in the tree when the moon came out high above the hilltops and shone on the well. The blacksmith's stepdaughter, coming for water, looked down in the well, saw the face of the woman above in the tree, thought it her own face and cried, Oh then, to have me bringing water to a smith and I such a beauty, I'll never bring another drop to him. With that she cast the pail in the ditch and ran off to find the king's son to marry. When she was not coming with the water, and the blacksmith waiting to wash after his day's work in the forge, he sent the mother. The mother had nothing but a pot to get the water in, so off she went with that, and coming to the well saw the beautiful face in the water. "'Oh, you black swarthy villain of a smith!' cried she. "'Bad luck to the hour that I met you, and I such a beauty. I'll never draw another drop of water for the life of you.' She threw the pot down, broke it, and hurried away to find some king's son. When neither mother nor daughter came back with water, the smith himself went to see what was keeping them. He saw the pail in the ditch, and catching it went to the well. Looking down, he saw the beautiful face of a woman in the water. Being a man, he knew that it was not his own face that was in it, so he looked up, and there in the tree saw a woman. He spoke to her and said, "'I know now why my wife and her daughter did not bring water,' They saw your face in the well, and thinking themselves too good for me, ran away. You must come now and keep the house till I find them. I will help you, said Smallhead. She came down, went to the smith's house, and showed the road that the women took. The smith hurried after them, and found the two in a village ten miles away. He explained their own folly to them, and they came home. The mother and daughter washed fine linen for the castle. Smallhead saw them ironing one day and said, Sit down, I will iron for you. She caught the iron and in an hour had the work of the day done. The women were delighted. In the evening, the daughter took the linen to the housekeeper at the castle. Who ironed this linen? asked the housekeeper. My mother and I. Indeed then you did not. You can't do the like of that work. And tell me who did it. The girl was in dread now and answered, It is a woman who is stopping with us who did the ironing. The housekeeper went to the queen and showed her the linen. Send that woman to the castle, said the queen. Smallhead went. The queen welcomed her, wondered at her beauty, put her over all the maids in the castle. Smallhead could do anything. Everybody was fond of her. The king's son never knew that he had seen her before, and she lived in the castle a year, what the queen told her she did. 
The king had made a match for his son with the daughter of the king of Ulster. There was a great feast in the castle in honour of the young couple. The marriage was to be a week later. The bride's father brought many of his people who were versed in all kinds of tricks and enchantment. The king knew that Smallhead could do many things, for neither the queen nor himself had asked her to do a thing that she did not do in a twinkle. Now, said the king to the queen, I think she can do something that his people cannot do. He summoned Smallhead and asked, Can you amuse the strangers? I can if you wish me to do so. When the time came and the Ulster men had shown their best tricks, Smallhead came forward and raised the window, which was forty feet from the ground. She had a small ball of thread in her hand. She tied one end of the thread to the window, threw the ball out and over a wall near the castle. Then she passed out the window, walked on the thread, and kept time to music from players that no man could see. She came in, all cheered her, and were greatly delighted. I can do that, said the king of Ulster's daughter, and sprang out on the string. But if she did, she fell and broke her neck on the stones below. There were cries, there was lamentation, and in place for marriage, a funeral. The king's son was angry and grieved, and wanted to drive Smallhead from the castle in some way. She is not to blame, said the king of Munster, who did nothing but praise her. Another year passed. The king got the daughter of the king of Connaught for his son. There was a great feast before the wedding day, and as the Connaught people are full of enchantment and witchcraft, the king of Munster called Smallhead and said, Now show the best trick of any. I will, said Smallhead. When the feast was over and the Connaught men had shown their tricks, the king of Munster called Smallhead. She stood before the company, threw two grains of wheat on the floor and spoke some magic words. There was a hen and a cock there before her of beautiful plumage. She threw a grain of wheat between them. The hen sprang to eat the wheat. The cock gave her a blow of his bill. The hen drew back, looked at him and said, Bad luck to you. You wouldn't do the like of that when I was serving the old hag and you her pig, and I made a man of you and gave you back your own form. The king's son looked at her and thought, There must be something in this. Smallhead threw a second grain. The cock pecked the hen again. Oh, said the hen, you would not do that the day the hag's sister was hunting us and we two doves. The king's son was still more astonished. She threw a third grain. The cock struck the hen and she said, you would not do that to me the day I made two heather brooms out of you and myself. She threw a fourth grain. The cock pecked the hen a fourth time. You would not do that the day you promised not to let any living thing kiss you or kiss anyone yourself but me. You let the hound kiss you, and you forgot me. The king's son made one bound forward, embraced and kissed Smallhead, and told the king his whole story from beginning to end. This is my wife, said he. I'll marry no other woman. Whose wife will my daughter be? asked the king of Connaught. Oh, she will be the wife of the man who will marry her, said the king of Munster. My son gave his word to this woman before he saw your daughter, and he must keep it. So Smallhead married the king of Munster's son. The Rider of Riddles There was a king once, and he married a great lady, and she departed on the birth of her first son. And a little after this the king married another wife, and she too had a son. The two lads grew up tall and strong. Then it struck the queen that it was not her son who would come into the kingdom, and she set it before her that she would poison the eldest son. And so she sent advice to the cooks that they should put poison in the drink of the air. But as luck was in it, the youngest brother heard them, and he told his brother not to take the draught nor to drink it at all, and so he did. But the queen wondered that the lad was not dead, and she thought that there was not enough of poison in the drink, and she asked the cook to put in more on the second night. It was thus they did, and when the cook made up the drink, she said that he would not be long alive after this draught. But his brother heard this also, and told him likewise. The eldest thought he would put the draught into a little bottle, and he said to his brother, If I stay in this house, I have no doubt she will do for me some way or other. I will take the world for my pillow, and there is no knowing what fortune will be on me. 
His brother said that he would go with him, and they took themselves off to the stable, and they put saddles on two horses, and they took their souls out of that. They had not gone very far from the house when the eldest one said, There is no knowing if poison was in the drink at all, though we went away. Try it in the horse's ear, and we shall see. The horse did not go far before he fell. That was only a rattle-bones of a horse anyway, said the eldest one, and they got up together on the other horse, and so they went forwards. But, said he, I can scarce believe that there is any poison in the drink. Let's try it on this horse. That he did, and they went not far when the horse fell cold dead. They thought they'd take the hide off him, and that it would keep them warm at night, which was close at hand. In the morning, when they woke, they saw twelve ravens come and light on the carcass of the horse, and they were not long there when they fell down dead. They went and lifted the ravens, and they took them with them. And the first town they reached, they gave the ravens to a baker, and they asked him to make a dozen pies of the ravens. They took the pies with them, and they went forward on their journey. About the mouth of night, and when they were in a great thick wood, there came four and twenty robbers, who bade them to deliver up their purses. But they said that they had no purse, but only a little food which they were carrying with them. Good is even meat, said the robbers, and they began to eat it, but had not eaten much when they fell hither and thither, all stone dead. When they saw that the robbers were dead, they ransacked their pockets and got much gold and silver. They went forward till they reached the Knight of Riddles. The house of the Knight of Riddles was in the finest place in that country, and if his house was pretty, his daughter was prettier, and she had twelve maidens with her, only less fair than she. Her like was not on the surface of the world, altogether so handsome was she, and no one would get her to marry but the man who could put a question to her father that he could not solve. The brothers thought that they would go and try to put a question to him, and the youngest was to stand in place of Gilly to the elder brother. They reached the house of the Knight of Riddles, and this was the question they put to him. One killed two, and two killed twelve, and twelve killed four, and twenty, and two got out of it, and they were to be kept in great majesty and high honour till he should solve the riddle. They were thus a while with the rider, and try as he might, he could not guess the riddle. On a day of days came one of the maidens who were with the knight's daughter to the gilly, and asked him to tell her the question. He took her plaid from her and let her go, but he told her nothing. The same thing happened to the twelve maidens, day after day, and the gilly said to the last one that no creature had the answer to the riddle, but his master down below. One day after this came the knight's daughter to the eldest brother, and looking her finest and handsomest, and she asked him to tell her the question. And now there was no refusing her, and he told her, but he kept her plaid. The knight of riddles sent for him, and he gave him the answer of the riddle. And the knight said that he had two choices, to lose his head, or to be set adrift in a crazy boat, without food or drink, without oar or scoop. The elder brother spoke, and he said, I have another riddle to put to thee, before all these things happen. Say on, said the knight, myself and my gilly were one day in the forest shooting. My gilly fired at a hare, and she fell and he took her skin off, and let her go. And so he did to twelve. He took their skins off and let them go. And at last came a great fine hare, and I myself fired at her, and I took her skin off, and I let her go. Indeed thy riddle is not hard to solve, my lad, said the knight, and he knew the lad knew he had not really guessed the riddle, but had been told the answer. So he gave him his daughter to wife, to make him hold his peace, and they made a great hearty wedding that lasted a day and a year. The youngest one went home now that his brother had got so well on his way, and the eldest brother gave him every right over the kingdom that was at home. Now there were near the march of the kingdom of the Knights of Riddle three giants, and they were always murdering and slaying some of the knight's people, and taking spoil from them. On a day of days the Knight of Riddles said to his son-in-law, that if the spirit of a man were in him, he would go to kill the giants, as they were always bringing such losses on the country. 
Well, so it was, he went and he met the giants, and he came home with the three giants' heads, and he threw them at the knight's feet. Thou art an able lad, doubtless, and thy name hereafter is the hero of the white shield. The name of the hero of the white shield went far and near. Meanwhile, the brother of the hero of the white shield had wandered afar in many countries, and after long years had come to the land of the giants, where the hero of the white shield was now dwelling, and the knight's daughter with him. His brother came, and he asked to make a covrag, or fight as a bull with him. The men began at each other, and they took to wrestling from morning till evening. At last, and at length, when they were tired, weak, and spent, the hero of the white shield jumped over a great rampart, and he asked the stranger to meet him in the morning. This leap put the other to shame, and he said to him, Well may it be that thou wilt not be so supple about this time to-morrow. The young brother now went to a poor little bothy that was near to the house of the hero of the white shield, tired and drowsy, and in the morning they dared the fight again. And the hero of the white shield began to go back till he went backwards into a river. There must be some of my blood in thee before that was done to me. Of what blood art thou? said the youngest. Tis I am son of Arden, great king of the Alban. Tis I am thy brother. And it was now they knew each other. They gave luck and welcome to each other, and the hero of the white shield now took him into the palace. And she it was that was pleased to see him, the knight's daughter. He stayed a while with them, and after that he thought that he would go home to his own kingdom. And when he was going past a great palace that was there, he saw twelve men playing at shinny over against the palace. He thought he would go for a while and play shinny with them, but they were not long playing shinny when they fell out, and the weakest of them caught him and shook him as he would a child. He thought it was no use for him to lift a hand amongst these twelve worthies, and he asked them to whom they were sons. They said they were children of the one father, the brother of the hero of the white shield, who had not been heard of for many years. I am your father, said he, and he asked them if their mother was alive. They said that she was. He went with them till he found the mother, and he took her home with him and the twelve sons, and I don't know but that his seed are kings on Alba till this very day. End of More Celtic Fairy Tales by Joseph Jacobs